Welcome to this episode of Skintings. Just a note from me before this episode, this is part of my radio documentary series, The Blackness of Rock, that I worked on for Absolute Radio. So here it is. Enjoy. Over the past few weeks, we've been playing you little episodes of our documentary put together um, in honour of Black History Month called The Blackness of Rock, where I kind of um, try and discover how rock music, which started off in rhythm and blues and gospel and um, basically black music, how by the time Jimi Hendrix was doing his music, um, it was defined as white music. How did that happen? And I felt like in the past weeks, we've been wandering around that matter, but hadn't it actually fixed upon on the actual moment. Um, so I was delighted and honoured to be able to speak to Maureen Mann, who's the Associate Professor in the Department of Music at New York University. Um, and she's an author of this excellent book called Black Diamond Queens, which is the study of African-American women and rock and roll. Really going back to the 1920s where it all started um, and going up to now and um, I guess I really wanted to grab hold of what was the moment when did rock and roll turn white when was it perceived to be something that was mainly for and played by white people um, so I had just the most brilliant insightful conversation with Maureen Mann. Um I hope you enjoy it here she is Well, I started listening, you know, as a teenager, which was in the late 70s. And so I was listening to what was then rock radio, what is now called classic rock. I don't think it was classic yet when I was listening to it. <laughs> we call it classic. Uh, a lot of my friends were listening to that music as well. Yeah. I remember being very excited to see The Who, for example. They, wow. they were doing yeah. a big tour in the States. And we just listened to it. We didn't really know we're thinking was, about yeah. where it came from. And yeah. uh, over the years, what I experienced, so in high school and in college, was a sort of surprise that people had when they learned that I, a Black person, was interested in rock. That, that seemed like there was a disconnect there, there was something wrong, that I was being inauthentic. That response was really interesting to me. It was problematic because I always felt like I was black. Yeah. I was being told that I was doing something that wasn't black. And so yeah. when I went to do my graduate degree, I came back to that kind of conflict, like, yeah. that conundrum. And I did research uh, around an organization called the Black Rock Coalition, which is best known as the sort of launching pad for the band Living Color. And was just, you know, immersing myself in that community of musicians and the kinds of issues uh, and music and politics that they were dealing with. Uh, and I did that work in the 90s. The next project, I, I decided I wanted to go back to the sort of people who came before the Black Rock Coalition members. When I think about like the beginning of, of recorded music for African-Americans, it's really women who are the first people who are being recorded and circulated. So you get Mimi Smith making this mm. crazy blues in 1920. And that's the first sort of hit record for an African-American. So we're starting this foray into recorded music with Black women. And then Betsy yeah. Smith becomes the, the superstar of the blues. Yeah. So Betsy yeah. Smith... Mamie Smith, Ma Rainey, Alberta Hunter, all of those women 
And yeah. then you have Sister Rosetta Tharp, who's coming out of gospel, this fierce guitar player starting out on acoustic guitar. But then when electric guitars become available, she picks up, you know, she starts playing electric guitar and she's really formative. And mm -hmm. people play electric. A bit of fuzz in there. Yeah, she's phenomenal. So she crosses over and starts doing secular music. And she brings the, the kind of energy, this kind of ecstatic energy that is part of gospel, brings that into secular music. She was very controversial for doing that. So you also yeah. had these women who were just pushing boundaries. So I yeah. recently people are starting to recognize Sister Rosetta Tharp. Um, Gail Wald's biography. Yeah, her yeah that's right. Yeah. Absolutely Amazing. Important to yeah. You know, so we're always trying to like find these women and, and, and tell their stories. When I was a little kid, I was a big Nina Simone fan. Oh my God, me too. Me Simone, too. Right? First book I ever bought. <laughs> yeah. I record at, at 12 years old. Yeah. So, and yeah. so, you know, what genre is she in? She was yeah. really resistant to being put into a category. So people yeah. try to say she was jazz or she was folk or she, but she did it all. I mean, she, I mean, she first and foremost, she was a pianist. Right. And she was an artist who had a vision. And so she could, you know, reconstruct a song, you know, the, what she does with Instantly. the song Pirate yeah. with uh, Pirate Jenny, this Kurt Lyle song yeah. that's supposed to be about one thing. And she takes it and, and turns it into this other kind of commentary. Yeah. Um, she was a songwriter. Uh, she started writing songs that were very political, very forceful. Um, Mississippi Goddamn, obviously. Mm -hmm. At a time of, that's not what a popular singer yeah. was supposed to do. And she, yeah. she did it. So it's you know, another example of pushing against these boundaries. So those are a couple of early figures I think we still feel them and hear them resonate. Still inspiring everybody. I mean, you touched on something that I think is really interesting. You talked about authenticity. Because as a Black woman myself, singing rock music, you know, rock music is based around being authentic and based around being like, you've got to be honest, you've got to be true, and blah, blah, blah. When I first started playing rock music, I remember one of my friends came to see me play, and I didn't hear from her for days. This was before mobile phones. And I finally caught up with her about a month later. And I said, you didn't like the gig? I didn't hear from her. She said, well, you know, you were playing the music of our people. I've always had it in the back of my head because I think that some of the issues that I've had as a Black person playing rock music are to do with I'm not supposed to be the face of it. I'm not supposed to be playing it because I'm not being authentic with myself because I should be doing other types of music. But then when you swap that round to when white people play Black music, it's perceived in a totally different way. Like, oh, it's cool. It's amazing. Look what they could do. They're just as good as a black singer, but they're better and they become much, much more successful. So I think when you were talking about authenticity, that really struck a chord with me, right? Because by the time you get to Jimi Hendrix's period of life, he has to leave America to come right. to England to be successful because he's just not accepted as a rock guitarist in America. By the time we get to that, you know, the late 60s and the 70s, it's no longer a Black music genre. It's a fascinating period. There's a lot of flux because at the beginning of the 1960s, you actually have this moment, I think it's 1963, when there are all of these Black artists on the pop music chart. Yeah. So the, the rhythm and blues has crossed over and it's becoming really, you know, pretty mainstream. And then you also yeah. have the girl groups, which are primarily Black girls, you know, teenagers or very yeah. 20s uh, dominating the music charts. So you do have this moment where there's, a, there's this real prominence 
of African-Americans. And I think people talk about the shift that happens after the Beatles arrive in the United States in 1964. Yeah. And there's another change. Ladies and gentlemen, the Beatles. And so the African-American artists are still on the charts, but they're not seen as really, you know, the most of the moment thing. It's the, the British thing. Yeah. Comes the thing. And that's when, uh, especially with the Rolling Stones and the animals, that's when white Americans really hear the blues for the first time because that music had not been accessible to them. That had been in African-American communities and the United States is so segregated. You just didn't hear that. You would hear rhythm and blues, which got labeled rock and roll, but the blues like Muddy Waters or, you know, Howlin' Wolf, that wasn't available. So it had to be filtered through white musicians, white British musicians for white Americans to get access to it. And then I think what happened is as white Americans started to pick up on that music, you know, they wanted to listen to it and they wanted to play it. I think the the divide that exists in the United States, it's a, it's a very segregated country and we understand ourselves through these oppositions. So if if something is black, then it is perceived as, you know, only black and it can't crossover it doesn't yeah. mess with anything yeah, white it's it's something, little, yeah. right and if anything if something is white then it has nothing to do with anything black there's no mixing and so once white people started to take on this music as bands and as players it became harder for black people to find a space in it because the music had become whitened yeah and Jimi hendrix the whole issue with him is he was perceived by both Blacks and, you know, mainstream of Black people, mainstream of white people as something other than Black because of his engagement with this music, which was a completely African-American form. He's playing blues guitar. He's changing that. He's distorting it. He's doing all of these beautiful, creative things with it. But he's coming out of that tradition. He learned the tradition on the Chitlin circuit, the Black circuit the rhythm and blues circuit that he was playing on in the early 60s took a lot of the tricks, the flashy showman yeah. things. Those were things that the men who had been playing electric guitar and things that Sister Rosetta Tharp had done on the black circuit. But white people hadn't seen it before. And yeah. so it was like, oh, he invented it. It's really cool. It was like he came from nothing or from, came out of <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. Came out of African-American musical traditions. And then... He's also very interested in what's happening with, you know, rock music at that time. He's a big fan of Bob Dylan. He's listening to all of these different sounds and he's putting all of that into what he's doing. But it didn't seem like something like a regular Black person would do. So he gets reframed as this sort of exceptional figure instead of mm. coming out of the set of practices that many people yeah. had been involved with and had been creating over a long period of time. So I think that's why you get this, this separation. And I think the authenticity part, I think we have to remember that authenticity is something that we construct. So we yeah. construct a definition of what is authentic. Yeah. And it's okay. shifting and changing. It, it's all in shifting and changing. It's, it's in motion and it's a, like a powerful way to silence people as much yeah. as it was a way, uh, you know, a powerful way to hold people up and, you know, elevate people. But I think the main thing to remember is that there's no authentic authenticity. Like it's yeah. something that we create and in cer at certain moments we assign certain definitions. And one of them is cool and one is not cool. So, right. you know, 
I think whereas Black artists playing rock music was perceived as not cool because the authenticity, which you would describe, was a lot of time not controlled by us. You know, we weren't in control of how we were defined in those ways. So that was uncool. And then other things were seen, perceived as being cool. And I feel that as an artist myself. That was Maureen Mann who I chatted to. Um, I just loved talking to her. That was the most insightful conversation. I really enjoyed every second of that. Uh, thank you, Maureen. That was an honour to talk to you and to really get to grips with uh, what we're talking about in this documentary, The Blackness of Rock. Mm-hmm.